Mike. Lauren. Mike, when was the last time that you drove a brand new car? Uh, a few weeks ago, last month. I drove an Infiniti Q50 sedan. That's an SUV? Oh, it's a sedan. Sedan, yeah. Okay. And what was it like? Oh, it was awesome. It was like super comfortable. Uh, It had really nice interior, really nice in-dash system. It had the uh, intelligent cruise control that slows down when a car cuts you off. Sounds fancy. It was. It was pretty fancy. I I felt very futuristic. What about you? I think the last time that I drove a really new car was when I was test driving a Tesla. Not test driving to purchase, but test driving because Tesla had one on loan to me and I was writing about it. Sure, yeah. And it kind of felt like driving a spaceship. I was completely distracted. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's that's the goal, right? Is to turn it into your home away from home. Right. Like it's a spectacular vehicle in many ways, but it also just feels like you are driving a computer. It is a computer on four wheels. Yeah. And that's the way cars are going these days, right? It really is. And we should probably talk about this. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And we're joined this week by Wired staff writer Ariane Marshall, who is Zooming from a closet in Seattle. Hello, from a <laughs> closet in Seattle. <laughs> and you were just in the Bay last week, but I missed you. So you'll have to come visit us again soon and tape the Gadget Lab in person. You could maybe even drive a fancy new car down this way. I would love that. Okay, so this is basically the car talk edition of Gadget Lab. We are certainly not the first journalists to note that cars have essentially become computers. They're filled with sensors and chips, sometimes hundreds or thousands per car, and they're being marketed as software-defined vehicles by automakers. This is all supposed to make cars smarter. It also means a lot of data collection. In the second half of the show today, we're going to talk about how this fundamentally changes how cars are being sold and how we pay for their services. But first, we should talk about a really basic and important part of car ownership, repairs. Ariane, you just wrote a story for Wired.com about how all this tech in cars is killing the auto shop. What's going on here? Yeah, so it's, of course, a little complicated. But the thing I found through some reporting is that the kind of independent auto repair shop, um, you know, the idea that there's some dude on the corner who's like kind of always covered in grease, who you go to all the time to fix your car, that idea is is kind of dying. And the reasons why are uh, manifold. But uh, one is that it's really hard for people to find qualified car technicians these days, and that has to do with vocational schools. And one of the reasons too, is that it's harder to get parts right now because of supply chain woes. But the but the big issue, it seems, is that because cars are getting so complicated, as you say, they're kind of computers on wheels, that means you need increasingly specialized information, specialized and expensive tools to fix them. And those actually can differ between different makes and models of cars. Um, so it's it's a lot more complicated than it used to be. Tell us about um, an alignment adjustment, because this is something that you used to be able to ask a car repair person to do, and they could do it in like an hour or two. Uh, But now it's a lot more complicated, right? Yeah. So this was something that came up in my conversations with auto repair guys as a really good example of how the industry has changed. So you usually need your suspension adjusted or a realignment when your car is kind of drifting to one side or your steering wheel isn't 
quite doing what it should. And as you said, it, it used to be something that was kind of mechanical that could be accomplished in like an hour or so. I've heard from some people that it can take as long as nine hours now, um, usually close to around three or four. And the reason why it takes so much longer is because there are so many sensors in the car. And when you fix a car, you need to make sure that all those sensors, all the computer systems know exactly where a car's center line is, because if they don't, it, they're not going to know where they're in space. They're not going to be able to avoid collisions, um, which some of the advanced auto tech is built to do. Um, so it, because it's a computer, it just needs a little more tinkering than it used to. So it's not like the way cars are designed now. It's not like they just have this motherboard somewhere in the vehicle. And that section of the vehicle is where all like the gadgety stuff is, right? All the chips and sensors. It's actually integrated throughout a vehicle, which makes the prospect of repairs that much more complicated. Yeah, exactly. There can be, it, depending on the car, there can be hundreds or even over a thousand computer chips and they're scattered all over the car. So um, they all need to be involved and kind of know what's going on at, at any point. Ariane, you also covered in your story how the ratio of available bays for car repairs to cars is changing. Talk about this. Yeah. So the the big implication here is, okay, who who cares what's happening in my local auto shop? The reason it should matter to you if you're just someone who drives a car is these struggles in the auto repair industry means that there are actually now fewer places for people to get their cars fixed, um, fewer repair bays for them to drive their cars into and get them fixed. That means it can take longer to get cars repaired. According to some data that came out late last year, um, cars are now taking an average of two days longer to get repaired. So 11 days in all. Of course, that's highly dependent on what kind of repairs you're getting on your car. But that's, you know, two days of not being able to get around. That's a big deal for consumers. And those consumers are most likely having to wait longer because of supply chain issues too, right? Yeah. So this is something that's definitely not helping um, anyone who's taken a car in for a pretty big repair recently has probably heard about how long it takes to get parts these days. It can take a long time to get parts from other parts of the world, other parts of the country. And then the other problem is this computer chip issue, which has haunted us throughout the pandemic. The big makers of computer chips in Asia um, have been periodically shutting down throughout the pandemic. And that means that if you need a fix that needs a new computer chip or you're trying to buy a new car, it's, it's really hard to find them. Are there any signs of that easing? Yes, there are signs that that's easing. The computer chip issue, definitely. The supply chain thing is kind of going in fits and starts. It sort of depends on the week. And something the U.S. government is doing now is they're really trying to build a domestic computer chip industry. But it's going to probably take a few years for this to get better. So at least in the new car market, it's going to take a long time for new car prices to go down to what they were before the pandemic. That's what everyone in the sort of auto analyst world has been telling me for a while now. Hmm. So, I mean, so what's the answer here? Are we eventually going to see a market for specialized, quote unquote, dumb cars crop up? Or maybe a better question is, what's the model for an incredibly energy or fuel efficient car that is also not a hyper complicated computer? What people in the repair industry have told me is that it's going to kind of be a bumpy next 10 years in the repair industry, but that things are kind of going to even out. I think something that's not going to change is that you're going to continue to 
need specialized tools and knowledge to fix specific cars. That's especially true in kind of the high-end luxury market. You're talking about your fancy German cars and things like that. The other thing that people in the industry have told me that they're really excited about actually is that they've, they've been struggling for a long time to get new people into the industry, people interested in being auto technicians. The pay is usually not that great. Um, so that's usually a challenge in, in finding those people, but they're now finding that there's this younger generation of people who love technology. They love their iPhones. They love their iPads. And that's kind of an entryway drug to get into this new world of car repair, which is so focused on software. All right, Ariane, this has been really insightful. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about how super high tech cars mean we may be paying more, or at least differently, for our vehicles. Aside from the complicated mechanics and maybe the distractions of computerized cars, software-based vehicles are ushering in a totally new era of how we pay for services within cars. A lot of you have probably heard about the seat heaters. Back in July, The Verge reported that BMW was going all in on microtransactions within cars, and then later reported that these in-car services, kind of like in-app services, were popping up as subscription seat heaters in some vehicles in South Korea. Ariane, this idea is not entirely new because Tesla has done something like this before by selling you know, premium packages as part of its Tesla car sales. How inevitable is it that this is how we're going to be paying for services within cars? And maybe more importantly, how sustainable is it? I think there's no question that this is something automakers, all automakers, definitely not only BMW, definitely not only Tesla, are super interested in doing. The reason is some pretty simple economics. Car making is a pretty low margin business. Software is not. Um, you just build it and then keep selling it to people. Um, so they love that. And they love the idea that they can keep making money off their cars, even once they've kind of set them free onto the road, once they're in the hands of consumers. So it's a really exciting idea for auto executives. The question, of course, is how excited consumers will be about these ideas. Are they willing to pay a subscription for the seat heaters in their car? Are they willing to pay a subscription for, for example, General Motors sells a bunch of security features, um, a remote start, I think is something they sell separately as a subscription. Are people willing to do that? Is it the kind of thing where they're like, okay, I pay for Netflix this month and I play for Spotify and I also pay GM for these few features that I like. And I think that's definitely up in the air. And we'll see, you know, what people are willing to do. Maybe where it's going is that you'll be able to buy ad supported services inside your car, right? So uh, if you're willing to sit through an ad every 100 miles, then you get your free seat heater or something like that. Or, you know, you can unlock certain features in your car by allowing ads into the space. I mean, it sounds terrible, but everything is an ad service now, right? Yeah, I think, you know, that's that's dark and I hate it. But <laughs> if that's what's going to get me, uh, you know, free access to OnStar and GM, maybe I'm maybe I decide I'm OK with that. I look forward to just when you navigate to a radiology department somewhere, like getting targeted by big pharma. Yeah, that's really going to be the moment. Yeah, it's Google Maps. It's what is happening in Google Maps now, but just on your dashboard, built into your car. I mean, it, it. You do raise a good point, which we should talk about, which is the fact that 
there are sensors in your car that are collecting all of this data all of the time, right? It's our like, phones. Yes. Just, well, your phones and your car, right? There's your, your car has to know where you are. Your car has to know how fast you're driving. Your car has to know what type of accelerator you are, whether you're a lead foot or a feather foot, right? It's collecting all this information about you and all of that data is going somewhere. I'm sure most people who drive cars have no idea where it's going and to whom it's going. It's a good point. Ariane, what does this mean for the resale value or just the resale process with cars? If you buy a car now, but then you opt into a dozen different services via subscription, and let's say it also happens to be an electric vehicle that's running on a, you know, a giant lithium ion battery, and you go to sell it at some point, what does that look like? We have a lot of reason to believe that car makers are not going to continue subscriptions on to the next owner. So Tesla, for example, um, they'll sell their uh, automated driving features, which they call full self-driving, even though it's not full self-driving. We don't have to get into that there. But there's a lot to talk about there. Um, uh, they'll sell that for you know $10,000 to one owner of a Model 3, and then they'll go and sell it to someone else. And that next person doesn't get access to full self-driving and they have to pay another $10,000 for it. You can see why automakers really love this. They get to make more money off different sorts of people and they can keep making that money as their cars that were once new start to circle into the used sales market. Yeah, they get to double dip. Yes, delicious. And also in essence, they get to dip as many times as they want, because if they're selling you a car that is super complicated software wise and very difficult for anybody to fix without access to all the proper tools and the proper software to talk to the car, then people who buy them are just going to keep going back to the dealership. So they get to charge the dealership repair fees. And that also hurts, like we were talking about, the independent auto shops who would normally be fixing that car. Yeah, and that's that's something that dealerships are thinking a lot about now. Part of the attraction of EVs is should be that there there are fewer moving parts in there, fewer kind of mechanical stuff, so you don't, you know, you don't need to go in to get your oil changed. And dealerships want to make sure they're still kind of part of the conversation, still a place where people have to go. Um and you know, there's there's been some innovative thinking about how you how you make sure everyone kind of still gets paid. This whole conversation makes me think that we just probably sound old. <laughs> <laughs> we're just shaking our fist at smart cars, and maybe maybe we're actually staring down a a post car future. I don't think that's really possible, particularly not here in the United States. Yeah, but. I think we're examining all of the elements and the problems of hyper-efficient electronic vehicles because we're still so stuck in the same container of that vehicle that we've known now for over a century. Um, and I think about, like I think about, I recently did um, one of our Wired newsletters about this topic. It was titled, if anyone wants to look it up, turns out you own nothing. Yeah. And we talked about the BMW uh seat heaters. And as part of that newsletter, I went back into an old Wired issue from just a, just a little over a decade ago. And I went to the back page of our magazine. And there was this really cool graphic, you know, this kind of mock-up art that was like the shopping mall of the future. Oh, so this yeah. is 2012. And it was imagining the shopping mall of the future. There are two escalators going up what looked like a pretty traditional shopping mall. And there were all these like made up stores like you're, you know, go here to get your 
your thing 3D printed, right? And um, there was like, a, you know, hyper efficient plastic surgery option and yeah. like, Drones you know, are us. <laughs> things like that, yeah. right? And like what, what was struck me when I saw that was how those commerce options were actually not super far off, but the mall has changed. The mall as we knew it is just both from the 2008 financial crisis and the pandemic and just the way we consume things has completely changed. So it's that container that has evolved the most. So I wonder if 10 years from now, maybe it's 30 years from now, maybe it's 50 years from now, younger generations will, the fact that these vehicles are smart will be an assumed thing, but maybe the vehicle itself takes another form. Maybe we actually end up, I don't, I don't know, maybe we actually get the infrastructure changes that we need. But like, I just, I wonder what like the far off future is for this kind of, these kinds of services. They're not even cars anymore, they're services. I mean, I have one prediction. Which is what? There will be a market for dumb cars. There'll be a market for new cars that have no software uh, and have no tracking. Just like you can buy like a privacy-minded phone now, mm -hmm. right? Like a phone where you can turn off all that stuff mm -hmm. or you can use a browser that doesn't run JavaScript or whatever. Uh, I think there will be a market for for cars that are like, you know, the privacy car or the, uh, the, the, the DIY car where you make all the repairs yourself and there's no dealership because you would never take it to a dealership because then they could plug into it and see where you've been, you know? For like the the basically the the paranoid self sustaining people who we all love, right? You become. I mean, yeah, you're a prepper. Basically, <laughs> you're like gotta stock up my extra gas so I can get out when everything goes to hell. Something I've been thinking about when we talk about this idea of subscriptions and how kind of scary the idea is that we can't own anything. I've been thinking about kind of the flip side, which is if companies build things. Um, and maybe we don't own them or um, we have to pay a subscription to to keep the service. Maybe that gives companies incentives to build products that really last a long time. Um, this is something I, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about climate change emissions, um, how to make the world more sustainable. And maybe one way is to build, for example, a, a washer dryer. Maybe the company continues to own it and I sort of rent it. But then the incentive for them is that they're building the hardiest washer dryer they can because it's still theirs. Um, I'm just trying to kind of think through the the implications of this interesting sort of services-based economy. It seems like we are hurtling towards and maybe it's not always a bad thing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, especially when you think about limited resources like cobalt or nickel or things that are just being mined right now to create and service these kinds of vehicles. If that is available in limited quantities, if that's a finite resource, then wouldn't it make sense to find some way to have that be part of a circular economy? Mm. I, if, if this is a topic you're interested in, Greg Barber and I wrote a three-part series on battery, battery recycling last year that spends a lot of time on this. Um, and it's something, you're totally right, it's something like a ton, a ton of people really think is kind of the key to making electric vehicles actually sustainable, actually good for the world. That's the perfect way to end this conversation, Ariane. Just a nice little plug for other Wired stories. <laughs> Go to Wired.com. Go to Wired.com. Good job. I very much appreciate that. That was a good <laughs> circular conversation right there. All right, let's take another quick break, and then we're going to come back with our weekly recommendations.
Ariane, what's your recommendation this week? Okay, I have an anti-recommendation and then a recommendation. Last time I, I was here. It. Yes. Go ahead. Last time I was here, I recommended going to baseball games. I take that back. <laughs> what? They they will ruin your life in oh, October. No. I had oh, a no. terrible Are you a Guardians weekend. Fan? No, I'm a Mariners and Dodgers fan. They lost on the same day this weekend. It was just like a long, horrible day of horrible baseball. Just don't, just avoid it. Just avoid the sport. And say well, it's now my you don't advice. have to go so to I any rem- more baseball I remember games. this now that you're a Seattle fan, of course. <laughs> yeah, I've become a Seattle fan now that I'm, I live in this closet in Seattle. Um, <laughs> but I have a good recommendation, <laughs> which is appointment television, which is something I you know, stop doing during the pandemic, obviously, because we weren't seeing people. But I have a group of friends who would get together every week to watch the new Lord of the Rings show, which I don't think is very good. But it was really fun to watch it together. Um, <laughs> and we should all do that more. We should just get mm-hmm. together and watch TV. Mm-hmm. Do you use Watch Party? No, we would physically gather in the same about, like, room. Like being IRL, like a cuddle puddle oh. with, for movies. Yeah, we made... Breakfast burritos. We had mimosas. Wow. Yeah. That's that's so 2019 of you. That's amazing. Actually, I, I would say it's like 2008 of you. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, we used to do like Sunday night HBO television at our house, and we would like make a big Italian meal and watch The Sopranos. It was very on brand. Yeah, that it, that's so lovely. Let's do. Yeah. Let's all do that more. More of that. Yeah, but because it was a Sunday Italian family dinner, did you eat at like three? Uh, no, but, uh, it would come on, we being on the West coast, you'd have to wait till the show came on, but we would have access to the East coast feed so we could watch it three hours earlier and not have to wait until, you know, 9 PM or whenever it came on. That's some pretty great Sopranos hacking right there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Back in the days of basic cable. Ariana, very much respect this recommendation. Thank you. We'll have to have one of these parties next time you're in the Bay. Please. Yes. Maybe we'll watch, watch a baseball game. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry. My condolences. I'm an A's fan. I totally get it. Yeah, that's dark. It's pain. I'm not really a baseball fan, but I was on the East Coast last week when people were watching lots of baseball games. Tis the season. I guess so. Yankees fans seemed happy. No, Yankees fans are never happy. They're just delusional. <laughs> Mike, what's your recommendation? <laughs> My recommendation is beat the Yankees. Um, <laughs> Wait, they won, right? Uh, unfortunately, yes. yes. Okay. Uh, okay. My recommendation is uh, Twin Peaks. Like David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Yes. If you have not watched Twin Peaks or if it's been a while, I can highly recommend going back and watching the first two seasons, which originally aired in like 1989, 1990. Uh, and then watching the third season, which aired during 2017. Um, the first season is obviously a stone classic, right? It's just amazing. There was nothing like it on television when it came out. And it still holds up. It still feels like you're watching a show from the late 80s, but it definitely holds up because it's very weird. Television has gotten very weird since then, so it may not feel as like shocking or revolutionary, but it's still good TV. The second season is very strange, very hit or miss. It kind of goes off the rails, but it ends on a cliffhanger that the team decided 25, 26 years later that they would revisit and pick up from where they left off. So fast forward to 2017 when they did the third season and everything about television has changed. 
the delivery mechanisms have changed. The expectations have changed. All the actors have aged, but almost all of them came back and did the third season with the original team. And it is wild. That third season of Twin Peaks, known as Twin Peaks The Return, is one of the most unique and bizarre things you will ever watch on television. And I can say that no matter who you are and what you like, it is the most psychedelic, messed up, scary, bizarre thing I've ever seen on TV. And it was on Showtime. It wasn't on some channel that nobody gets. It was on Showtime. Uh, So I recommend that if you have Showtime that you watch all three seasons because they're all on Showtime. And if you don't, you can rent the first two seasons uh, and definitely do that, even if you don't see the third. But Twin Peaks. Would you recommend diving right into the third season without having seen the first and second? No, I wouldn't. It's too confusing. I mean, granted, even if you've seen all of Twin Peaks and Fire Walk With Me, the movie they did, you would still be super confused by the third season. But I think it's it makes a lot more of an impact if you've already seen the first two seasons. Because, you know, you're invested in the characters, there's storylines that they pick up in the third season, uh, and then there's just a whole bunch of weird stuff. Is it actually filmed in Twin Peaks? Uh, no, fictional town. Um Near the Canadian border. I have a relevant anecdote. I just went to the diner in Twin Peaks, which is still operational in North Bend, Washington. Did they make a mean cup of joe and a good pie? They heavily advertised their cherry pie. I didn't have it. I had an omelet. It was fine. (laughs) It sounds like a tourist trap. But God bless him, right? The double R. Did you go to Big Ed's gas farm and have him uh, adjust the alignment on your car? I did not. <laughs> totally missing out. Wait, Twin Peaks is supposed to be in San Francisco, though. Uh, no, there is a, a there is a, a hill in San Francisco, right. Twin Peaks. That's where the show is based? The show is based in northern Washington. Oh, okay. Yeah, near the Canadian border. Wow, this whole time. Like for decades, I thought it was referring to Twin Peaks, San Francisco. So you're a perfect candidate for my recommendation. You have to watch it. Okay. Where would I find the original Twin Peaks? It's on Showtime. Seasons one and two? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it, I have a Showtime subscription. If you don't, you can rent it from – everybody rents the, the shows. Okay. So you can rent them from wherever you get your digital content. Okay. Well, if anyone would like to give me their Showtime login. Although I think I'm the one of my friend group who usually has the Showtime login and then share it. Mm. Along with HBO. But well, anyway. Well, then what are you waiting for? <laughs> I, because I don't remember if I am currently subscribed or unsubscribed, but that's that's good to know. Wow. Washington, huh? Yeah. You're blowing my mind. It's all there. Everything is there. Okay. What's your recommendation? My recommendation this week is someone on Twitter already guessed it. It's a weighted blanket. Nice. Yes. I finally had an experience with a weighted blanket. Several years ago, I think about four years ago now, our former colleague and pod co-host, Arielle Pardez, wrote a story for Wired about how she loved her weighted blanket. She described it like she felt like a toasty burrito. And um, I was intrigued, but not enough to buy one. We've reviewed them over the years. We have a great roundup on Wired.com, another shameless plug for Wired.com, where our colleagues have tried a bunch of them. But I was visiting friends last week. I was staying at their place in Brooklyn. Shout out to Steve and Sarah and their absolutely delightful children for hosting me. And as uh, Sarah was sort of like helping me make the bed, she said, oh, and here's a weighted blanket. And she just threw it on the bed. 
And I just I slept like the dead. I slept so well. And I woke up and I was like, this is amazing. And I'm not a very good sleeper. So I was like, I think I need to try a weighted blanket. So I ordered one. I decided to go with the Luna, which is on our list on wire.com of, of many weighted blankets. But I decided <laughs> to go with Luna. I've already decided. It, I just slept with it at home for the first time last night. I think it's a little too lightweight. I might, I might exchange it for a happy. <laughs> you need to, you need to level up. I really need to feel like I can't move. Like I want to feel like I'm just gonna wake up and text you and be like, Mike, can't make it into the office today. Stuck under the weighted blanket. What is it about that feeling? That feeling of just like being completely covered and pressed down i don't know it's so appealing to i people. don't know it's like really it makes you feel really secure well so i think this type of apparatus was originally developed for um people who are on the autism spectrum or suffer from severe anxiety it has been used in special education in the past and um, weighted vests weighted blankets that sort of thing and it has found its way to sort of the you know average consumer market as a way to help people feel safe and secure while they're sleeping. Right. And so they're like all the rage these days. And I finally tried one and now I'm hooked. I, I don't see myself going back. The problem is going to be when I'm traveling, as I sometimes do, <laughs> and I don't have a weighted blanket, then I'm going to be like, well, this sucks. It's well, just a regular old comforter. Well, if you're traveling to Vegas, you can just pay people to lay on top of you. <laughs> I don't know if Condé Nast is going to cover that expense. Yeah. It's yeah. like 300 bucks probably. Yeah, okay. You say that like you know. Well, you can get anything for $300 <laughs> in Vegas. <laughs> oh, you know I love Las Vegas. Yep. Second best city on earth. That's sarcastic. Uh, anyway, I recommend a weighted blanket. And I can't wholly recommend the Luna one yet because I do think I'm going to try to go for a heavier one. But um, Yeah. Yeah, you'll have to keep us updated as you I work will. up the uh, the scale. I, def I definitely will. Yeah. I think this is going to be a new world of sleep for me. I'm imagining you under those Super Mario, like, guys whose heads bang down. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Like in the 90s. Wait, in the Super no. Mario Brothers? Like yeah, like in, in Bowser's Castle, there are those, those sure. heads that have spikes and they bang oh. and they squish <laughs> Mario. But yep. it's you, and you're happy. Yep. <laughs> I think that's my happy place. That's your one-up. My happy yeah. place is either in the ocean <laughs> or under a weighted blanket. Sure. That's it. Not in front of the podcast, Mike. I'm sorry, everyone. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a week. All right. Um, this has been really fun, though. Uh, that just ended on a really dark note. We started with Twin Peaks, and then we ended up at Weighted Blankets. Um, Ariane, I'm really sorry about your baseball teams. I just it's have okay. to say. There's always next year. There's always next year. There are more games ahead. They play like 120-something games per season, so I think some of them are going to be okay. 180. That's true. 180? Yeah. Hopefully they're sleeping under Weighted Blankets. Yes, they are. And getting their rest. Ariane, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the future of cars. Thanks for having me, per usual. It's always a delight. And Mike, thanks for being such a great co-host. I try. I've decided after last week's episode with Stephen Levy that you are definitely still in the co-host chair. Oh, thanks. Yeah. It was a great episode, though. <laughs> You're welcome. It was, uh, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, Stephen's great and all. 
just letting you know your job's secure. Right on. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks all of you for listening, especially if you've listened this far. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth. We'll be back next week. Goodbye for now. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.